Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I'm, I'm once again uh, honored and especially pleased to introduce our, our next speaker. We really have an embarrassment of riches today. Uh, Bruce Schneier is, has got to be one of the most renowned and dynamic, what I would describe as a theoretical technologist, although that, that might diminish his, his uh, technological capacity to say it that way, but, but he, he operates at a level of theory, at a level of of abstraction and ability to look around the corner and over the horizon that is incredibly important these, to these debates where all too often we're, we're so focused down in the weeds of exactly where we, are, where we are at this technological moment that we fail to recall that it's never static, that the technology that evolves, that's giving rise to all this policy and legal disruption is itself going to continue to accelerate and change and even were we somehow to come up with a perfect equilibrium this afternoon, it would be upset tomorrow. That's why it's important to think about the sorts of things that, that Bruce has to say. Now, um, Bruce has written many books. I believe the current count is a dozen. So I won't, I won't even begin to try to list all those. I'll, I'll just flag one in particular, Liars and Outliers. I love that name. Liars and Outliers, Enabling the Trust Society Needs to Survive. But it, aside from his books, uh, being someone who blogs myself, I especially like uh, Schneier on security. It, it really is a must-read source for those of us who are interested in this topic. And, and the volume, and it's not just my opinion, the numbers uh, speak. He gets a quarter million readers. Uh, Lawfare, we're pretty proud of Lawfare. You know, we're not at, even within an order of magnitude of that. I find that very daunting. And so we're lucky to have him here today. He's a flat-out flat fascinating thinker and speaker, and we're very lucky to have him here. Bruce, thank you for joining us. Thank you, and thanks for letting me interrupt your lunch. So at one of the panels this morning, we talked a bit about how the details of all of these NSA stories uh, obscure the big picture. And I want to talk a bit about the big picture, both uh, NSA and, and, and more globally. You know, if I was to sum up the, uh, the stories of the past eight, nine months in, in a sentence, it's, it's that the NSA has turned the internet into a giant surveillance platform. And this is uh, something that's very robust. It's robust technically, it's robust legally, it's robust politically. Now, I can name three different programs the NSA has for getting at Google user data. And they involve three different technical capabilities, three different legal authorities, and agreements with three different corporations. And that's just Google email data. You have to assume that the same thing is true for cell phone, for other internet data, for everything else. Uh, the NSA's mission, which we, we've heard a bit about in pieces this morning, really is collect everything. And it, you, you can see it in the documents, slogans like collect it all, know it all, exploit it all. The, these sentences permeate the documents. And you see it in the NSA programs to collect data from you know, far corners of communications. You know, we've seen uh, work on programs to collect data from air-to-ground links that you, internet users on airplanes might be using. Or, or the one which, is, I mean, in some ways an amusing story, but really interesting to look at the chat going on in virtual worlds. 
you know, it seems like a very obscure corner, but if your mentality is that to collect everything, it's, it's part of everything. And to understand that mission, I think it's really important to understand the NSA's history, which we heard, uh, heard a little about this morning. It's coming out of the Cold War. It's coming out of this need to know as much as possible uh, about the Soviet Union, right, where this voyeuristic interest in the enemy was, was the norm and, and what we did. And as part of that, we collected a lot of data. Right? Some of it useful, some of it not. The, the distinction between, uh, was it mysteries, what was the other one? Secrets and mysteries, right? It's really a lot easier to figure out the characteristics of the new Soviet tank than it is to predict the fall of communism. And, and that ubiquitous surveillance died somewhat with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of communism. And you saw a lot more out of the NSA for their protect mission. You saw a lot more openness about good cryptography, good computer security. That all changed radically after September 11th. Right? This whole mission to eavesdrop got a new lease on life with those terrorist attacks. And at that point, the intelligence community got an impossible task. They were told never again. Right? And if you think about it, I mean, it, it is a ridiculous, impossible task, but the only way you can even remotely have a chance of ensuring that something doesn't happen is to know everything that does happen. So that, that focus on the Soviet Union, on the Warsaw Pact, was turned to the rest of the world, was turned into the United States, turned to the rest of the world. Right? And this also changes the nature of NSA's collection. Right? When the enemy is over there in Moscow, you can eavesdrop on Moscow. But when the enemy can be anyone anywhere, then you need capabilities against everyone everywhere. So I think of it as the notion of espionage turned into surveillance and targeted surveillance turned into ubiquitous surveillance. Now, this transition was aided by the way technology is working, by the natural trends of information technology. And it's important not to forget these. Right? Data is fundamentally a byproduct of the information society. Everything we do on computers creates a transaction record. Everything. Everything we do on our phone, everything we do on a laptop, everything we do with a credit card. These all create transaction records. Data is also a byproduct of our, our information society socialization. Conversations that used to happen face to face now happen over IM. You know, my wife and I communicate regularly over messages. Right? And that those conversations used to be ephemeral, and now they're not. Right? Increasingly, computers and corporations are mediating our social interactions. Email, cell phones, Facebook, all of these. 
And this data is increasingly stored and increasingly searchable. And this is purely a function of Moore's law. I mean, this data was created 10, 15, 20 years ago, but you'd throw most of it away because saving it was expensive. Data storage gets cheaper, data processing gets cheaper, and it's easier to save everything than to figure out what to save. Right? You all know this. You all hit the moment, for me it was 2006, when I stopped sorting my email. Right? Before 2006, I would sort my email in lots of boxes, throw away stuff I didn't need. At 2006, I said, hell with this, I'm just going to save everything. Because for email for me in 2006, search became cheaper than sort. The years might be different, but that switchover has happened for pretty much everything and will happen for everything else. Right? So we're all leaving digital footprints everywhere we go. This is, of course, exacerbated by cloud computing, by this notion that our data isn't being stored by us, that it is much cheaper, more efficient, better to give someone else our data to give Google our email, to give Flickr our photos, you know, whatever it is we do. And, and this isn't a definition, this isn't a question of malice on anybody's part here. I mean, this is basically the way computers work. This is basically the way that the technology works. Right? You could tack on the advertising model and lot, sort of lots of other business things that are going on, but this just flows from how computers operate. So the result is basically a public-private surveillance partnership. There's a fundamental alliance here of government and corporate interests. Right? Surveillance is the business model of the internet. Right? We build systems that spy on people in exchange for services. Right? And for the purpose of psychological manipulation, that's what we do. And NSA surveillance largely piggybacks on these capabilities. I mean, that's really what we've learned from these documents. The NSA didn't wake up in the morning and said, let's spy on everybody. They said, whoa, every, you know, the corporation is spying on everybody. Let's get ourselves a copy. And so this fundamentally is the golden age of surveillance. Right? And it's the golden age of surveillance because of the metadata. It is not only metadata. Right? No, not just metadata, not don't worry, it's only metadata. The fact that it's metadata is what makes this surveillance. Metadata equals surveillance. And in sort of an easy way to, to, uh, to visualize this, imagine you hire a private detective to spy on somebody. That detective would plant a bug in their homes, in their car, in their office, and you get a report of, of the conversations he had. Ask that same detective to put someone under surveillance, you get a different report. You get a report of where he went, who he spoke to, what he read, what he purchased. Right? That's all metadata. Metadata is surveillance data. Metadata tracks our relationships and our associations. It shows what we're interested in, what's important to us. It really, it really is a window into who we are. Right? Not only is it more intimate, it is easier to store, to search, to analyze. And one of the things missing from the NSA stories are, are the analysis tools. We hear a lot about different collection programs, not a lot about analysis. The one exception was the Washington Post story on cell phone location data, you know, where we learned some of the analysis tools that are used to uh, 
find burner phones or to find secret meetings or to find uh, people tailing other people. Because really it's not just one stream of data, it's all the data together. So it's Verizon metadata plus contact lists plus data mining or drones plus automatic Facebook recognition plus Facebook's tagged photo database plus a location database. You start putting these things together and you get much more invasive privacy tools. Right, so fundamentally, this is not about the NSA. I know the stories are about the NSA, but the issue is not about the NSA. Right, the U.S. has a very privileged position on the Internet that allows us to do a lot of things that other countries can't do, but these techniques are very general. Right, the Snowden documents have given us this extraordinary window into the NSA's activities, but this is really what any well-funded nation-state adversary would do. Right. China uses the quantum technology to enable their great firewall. You see these same techniques out of Russia, out of Syria, out of Iran, right, where they can. And this technology democratizes. Right. Today's secret NSA programs or tomorrow's PhD theses are the next day's hacker tools. You know, we, and, and, there, and things we learn about are, are also hacker tools, Fox Acid, which is basically uh, the hacker program Metasploit with a good budget. <laughs> right? uh, Quantum is the NSA program. The hacker tool is called AirPawn. It tends to work more locally because that's what hackers have, but it's the same thing. If you want to make your own X key score, just, uh, just get the uh, public domain bro security analyzer and put a lot of memory behind it. Right? I mean, even the, uh, the, the Tau exploit tools, the, the really neat... Uh, hacker tools we saw out of, out of the NSA, a lot of them have uh, real hacker analogs. You know, I just saw an ad for a grain of rice sized computer. If you want to build your own undetectable implant on someone else's computer, you can do that. Right, so a, a lot of these NSA techniques are a preview of what hackers are going to do in a year, two years, three years, five years. Right, they're a window into what other countries are doing today. Right? They're not unique. And this is fundamentally the harm. And when you think about the harm here, this is it. Right? We have built an insecure internet for everyone. Right? We have enabled this regime of global surveillance and all of everything that comes with it. Right? The loss of freedom, liberty, the loss of individuality. Right? Worldwide. I mean, inside the U.S., we've done additional damage. We've broken all of our systems. We've broken our political systems. Right? As Congress can't provide oversight and, and, and we're all kept in the dark about what's going on. We've broken our legal systems. And does anybody believe that secret courts making secret rulings on secret law has any place in a democracy? We've broken our commercial systems. As U.S. Uh, product and services are no longer trusted, uh, you had uh, Eric Schmidt uh, of Google in, in this city at South by Southwest a few weeks ago said, I think the quote was, we're pretty sure the NSA can't get into our stuff. That's a crappy marketing slogan. <laughs> and U.S. companies are learning that you know, we think we're secure except for the parts we don't know and the parts we can't tell you about, 
doesn't play well overseas. Right? And we've broken our technical systems. Right? As the products and protocols and standards we rely on for security, that the world relies on, are tainted. So we fundamentally need to make a choice. You know, we heard in some of the panels this morning that it's no longer us versus them, it's everybody. And that's right. And our choice is we build an internet that is secure from all attackers or an internet that is vulnerable for all users. That's it. And a lot of the discussions I heard this morning were very national. Now, should the U.S. do this or that? That's not, the, that's not where we're playing. It's should the world do this or that. And one of the reasons uh, those crypto wars in the 80s were lost is not because the U.S. government said, okay, relax crypto. They looked overseas and said, well, you know, we have crypto regulations. They don't in Europe, and they're going to take away all our business. But it's one world, it's one internet, it's one decision. Right now, there's some, there's some good news, bad news here. And uh, in his first interview with The Guardian, Edward Snowden talked about, about cryptography. And he said, I'm going to read the quote. He said, encryption works. Properly implemented strong crypto systems are one of the few things you can rely on. And we believe this is still true. Right? This is the lesson of the NSA's attempts to break TOR, the anonymity tool. They can't do it, and it annoys them. Uh, this is the lesson of the NSA's program to collect contact lists from the connections between your browser and uh, servers of Yahoo and Google and elsewhere. You looked at some of the collection numbers and they got about, for, for the, the time period they were writing, they got about 10 times the data from uh, Yahoo is from Google, which kind of makes no sense because Google is probably 10 times Yahoo's size. But at the time they were writing, Google used SSL encryption by default and Yahoo did not. And so Yahoo was a much more fruitful avenue of collection. Uh, we learned this from uh, the Muscular Program, which is the NSA's program to collect uh, user data from Google, Yahoo, and elsewhere by exploiting links between the data centers. I mean, there's this great handwritten diagram which points to the, uh, the, the piece of the uh, network where encryption is removed, right, thereby making the traffic more vulnerable. Uh, the next sentence of, of, of Snowden's interview answer was, was the bad news. Uh, and, he, and he said, unfortunately, endpoint security is so terrifically weak that the NSA can frequently find ways around it. Right? And we know, we know this is true. That uh, you know, even though the NSA makes a huge investment in mathematics, the higher about the top 10% of U.S. mathematicians every year, even though uh, uh, James Clapper s said something in, uh, in his black budget introduction about how there is some piece of cryptanalysis that, that, that's being exploited. We know, or at least we believe, that most current cryptography gives the NSA trouble at least at scale. Right? And most of how the NSA breaks cryptography is by getting around it. That's a variety of techniques, exploiting bad implementations, exploiting weak keys, sabotaging standards, or I think that's overstated in public and that's mostly happens in, in closed-door standards like, like cell phone standards. And we know about deliberate weakenings over the decades. Uh, and deliberately inserting uh, backdoors into, uh, in, into products. Now we have two examples of that, you know, both large companies and small companies. We have one from Microsoft. 
where um, Microsoft did something to Skype at the request of the U.S. government. And we know this from uh, Lavabit, a small company that was ordered to uh, give the government their master encryption key. They were a small company. They were able to close down instead of doing it. Certainly Microsoft didn't have that option. Yeah, and lastly, uh, exfiltrating keys, which is NSA speak for stealing them. Uh, mostly, though, the NSA relies on the unencrypted streams of data, and this is where we are at fault. You know, most internet data is not encrypted. Most cloud services are not encrypted. Most cell phone data and metadata is not encrypted. Most third-party data, most data that you give to somebody else, isn't being protected. Right, fundamentally, we have just made bulk collection too easy. And not just for the NSA, for everybody. Right, you know, the, the, the target breach from last year relied on the fact that the data was available to be stolen. So solutions here are going to be complicated and varied. And I think this is necessarily true just because the, 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 the problem is so complex. So there are, I think, internal self-corrections, there are technical countermeasures, there are legal countermeasures, international cooperation, and social changes, all of which need to happen. So self-corrections are interesting. I actually believe there is some self-correction inside the NSA. I mean, as amazing as it may seem, there was no contingency plans for all of their secrets being leaked. It's kind of surprising, but, you know, it took them, like, eight weeks to get a PR firm with the right clearance to help them with their messaging. And, and, it's quite, and that's no longer true. Right? This is the new reality, and, and now you know, messaging inside intelligence is, is pretty good. Right? I think the cost-benefit analysis has changed. One of the things that surprised me from, from reading the documents is, is how risk-averse the NSA is. That they really they don't take a lot that they they don't take a lot of chances, and and the political blowback internationally I think was much greater than anyone anticipated, and I think that it, that affects what the NSA does. I mean you know it might not be inside the NSA, but what tasks are given the NSA. I think it's a fundamental nature of uh, of of a change of sorry, some it's a fundamental nature in the change. I'm messing this up. Fundamental change in the nature of secrecy. There we go. That secrecy is different than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you'd be picked from college, you'd go into the intelligence community in your country, you'd have a job for life, you'd be shown the secrets, you'd become one of the chosen, you'd be part of the group. Nowadays, a lot of this is done by contractors. Right. Snowden was a contractor. Manning was on a four-year tour. These people were not in this for life. Right. So the notion of secrecy changes. And I think, again, you have to incorporate the risk of exposure into your uh, analysis. I, mean, I believe that, that pretty much anything the NSA does becomes public in three to five years. Which means if you are the NSA, you're going to have to assume that. And that will affect you. I think there are self-corrections inside corporations. I mean, fundamentally, 20 years ago, it was risk-free to cooperate with the surveillance. 
Right? The NSA came to you and said, hey, AT&T, we want to spy on the internet. Do you mind? You say, no, I don't. Just put stuff in the closet over there. Don't tell anybody. Right? Now, you, now that doesn't happen. And now because of this risk of exposure, because you know, it, it just feels like the NSA is throwing corporations under the bus here, that there is now PR value in fighting. And companies are learning that. And, and then we're starting to see legal fights. We're starting to see lobbying fights. Right? And that changes the nature of cooperation. Of course, we do have compulsion. So it's not all cooperation, but it does make it harder. I think the result of these uh, changes are minor, but they're real. Uh, there's a lot of technical countermeasures here that we can do. I mean, I'm often asked, what's the most, what was the most surprising thing of the NSA documents? I think the most surprising thing is that the NSA is not made of magic. Right? That they might have a bigger budget than the rest of the world combined, but they are still constrained by the same laws of economics, of physics, of mathematics as everybody else. And the goal is to leverage those laws, right, to make eavesdropping more expensive for everybody who wants to. Right? I mean, I don't think we'll ever, I don't think we'll ever get rid of targeted attack. You know, whether you are a, a Chinese dissident trying to stay alive, or a U.S. corporation with uh, with intellectual property, you know, whatever it is you want to protect. You know, the targeted collection, targeted attack is much harder to prevent than bulk collection. Bulk collection, I think we can. But that's where the economics fits in. Now, you know, we're now in a world where it's just easier to collect everything and then figure out what you want than it is to figure out what you want and then collect it. Right? And that's fundamentally backwards. There's a lot of things we can do here and and we're seeing uh, cooperation do some of them. We're seeing the internet security, uh, sorry, the internet standards bodies doing some of them. Right, to enable encryption to protect everybody, everywhere. So it's things like uh, adding encryption into, the, into standards, more endpoint security, more cloud security, better anonymity tools, more open standards that are harder to subvert. Uh, target dispersal, I think we were way more secure when we had 100,000 ISPs than we have 10. And information assurance, I mean, ways to figure out that what we, the software, that the software we buy does what we think it does and nothing else. Which is in a sense the worst damage that the NSA has done to the world, is, is by subverting products, that, that, that people just don't know what to trust. Like deliberately inserting vulnerabilities right, that, that anybody can use is, is, is bad. Right, largely though, this is a political problem. I mean, the, techno the technological changes are important, but I think the politics trumps here. And this is very difficult. We are long past the point where simple legal interventions can help. And so we I mean when the president comes up with a proposal to change one program under one authority, I think that's largely irrelevant because it's the robust nature of the problem. I mean, we know the general arc of the solution: right? transparency, oversight, accountability. I mean, these we know the we know the mechanisms we have in place 
in the United States to deal with the fact that sometimes law enforcement has to eavesdrop on somebody. Right? And we willingly give them that power because it helps solve crimes. Right? We know the mechanisms you put in place to secure ourselves against abuse, against mission creep. Right? So while we know the, uh, the general nature of the solution, the specifics are, are much harder. You know, and someone said in a panel this morning, laws lag technology. Right? Fundamentally, it's very hard to write a law that will be relevant in a few years because technology is just going to change. Uh, there's a quote from General Hyden, uh, previous NSA director, which is it's bandied about a lot, but I like it because it really explains this problem. And he's talking about his authority. And he says, give me the box you allow me to operate in. I'm going to play to the very edges of that box. Right? Kind of what you'd want from someone who runs the NSA. Tell me the rules, and I'm going to operate to the exact edges of the rules you give me. If you don't like that, pick new rules. I mean, the problem with that is his box gets bigger all the time. Right? Technology is making his box bigger, and technologist is able to rush in to fill that gray area before the law can get that box back to where it was. Right? So that makes this hard. When you think about laws, you think about things that are technologically invariant. I'm going to make stuff up, like a, a right to a private conversation or a right to uh, private data. I mean, a right to know what's being collected, how it's being used. Right? Prohibitions against subverting companies and standards. And things like that. But the problem with laws here is that even if we succeed, reigning in the NSA only affects the United States. Right? It doesn't affect the actions of other countries. It doesn't affect U.S. actions on non-U.S. persons. It doesn't affect non-state actors. So you hear a lot of arms race talk. And I remember hearing it, someone said this to me last week, that, that if we don't do this, China will. It's fundamentally an arms race argument. Right? There's a zero-sum game here. It's us versus them. Well, it might as well be us. So I think that argument is fundamentally flawed. That it's not us versus them. It's everybody versus nobody. And we need to get the governments of the world to realize that a secure internet is in everyone's best interest. That we would be smarter focusing on security even if China opposes it. Right? That turns the zero-sum game into a positive-sum game. Then you build laws and treaties to support it. You have technology to support the laws. You have laws and technologies to deal with uh, non-compliant actors, both state and non-state. It doesn't make this problem go away. It doesn't even make it easy. But it turns it into one of the other hard international problems we, we try to deal with like money laundering or nuclear nonproliferation or human trafficking, small arms trafficking. I mean, these are hard problems, but at least we all know what direction we're heading in. At least we all know where we want to go. And in the end, this is fundamentally a social problem. You're never going to get the laws until you get people recognizing that laws are what we need. As long as we are scared 
as long as we believe that terrorists are going to kill our children unless we dot, 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 we're going to do everything. Whether it's a good idea or not, right? whether it's long-term beneficial or not, whether it's moral or not. Right? And I, I think fear is driving a lot of this. Right? As long as we prioritize control over liberty, control is what we get. Now, the NSA can help here because what's lost in a lot of this is NSA has a dual mission. And we heard it uh, this morning, right? Protect the U.S. stuff and attack the foreign stuff. Right? Well, now we're living in a world where everyone's got the same stuff. Once we recognize that securing all of that stuff is in all of our interests, I think there's a lot of expertise inside the NSA. And as this, their dual mission became completely unbalanced and then the immediate fear after 9-11, we can rebalance it. I, mean, I started this by saying that surveillance in the inform information age is robust, right? technically, politically, and, and legally. And, and we need to solve this. You know, we, you know, we in the U.S., we solve it for the NSA, but we're really solving it for everybody, right? for other governments, cyber criminals, rogue actors. Right? We're solving it for the world. And it's important to get this right because infrastructure sticks around. The infrastructure decisions we make today are going to be around in 20 years. So as we decide this, we need to try to figure out what our legacy is going to be. What will our grandchildren think when they look back at the decisions we made here? Did we build an internet for liberty and security, or did we build one for surveillance and control? And this debate is actually bigger than the NS, well, bigger than security. I think this is the fundamental, fundamental issue of the information age. It's about data, data sharing, it's about surveillance as a business model, and it's about the societal benefits of collected data versus the individual nature of personal data. Now, you know, very broadly, the issue is that putting all of our data in one pot has benefits for combating the bad guys, yet it's incredibly personal in nature and we don't want to do that. But if you think about that question, it's the same one you have in the medical profession. Putting all of our medical data in one place would be enormously valuable for medical research, yet it's incredibly personal. Right? Putting all of our behavioral data in one place gives us free search and free email, yet Google knows what kind of porn we all like. Right? Letting uh, our cell phone surveil us as we drive our car gives us better traffic data as we're using the navigational tools, but what do you mean they're surveilling us as we drive our car? I mean, there's no one answer here, but these are the problems. How do we design these systems to benefit society as a whole while at the same time protecting people individually? And as I said, I think this is the fundamental, fundamental issue of the information society. I think Salve is going to take decades, and I think this is not a bad place to start. So thank you. <laughs>